Right, uh, good evening all. Uh, I am Richard Laurie and I am Vice Master of University College. It is my great pleasure to welcome you all this evening here, this castle lecture. It is, however, a particular great pleasure to welcome our speaker tonight, Professor Susan Stryker. Um, Susan earned her PhD in United States history from UC Berkeley and later held a postdoctoral fellowship in sexuality studies at Stanford University. She has been a distinguished visiting faculty member at Harvard University, University of California Santa Cruz, Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, and Macquarie University in Sydney? Did I pronounce that right? Macquarie. Macquarie, Macquarie I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense. <laughs> she moved to the University of Arizona in 2011 as director of the Institute of LGBT Studies. Susan was the first openly transgender author to publish an article in a peer-reviewed academic journal and has produced a significant body of work about transgender and queer culture and history. Susan has written widely and her books include Gay by the Gay, uh, Gay by the Bay, A History of Queer Culture in the San Francisco Bay Area, The Transgender Studies Reader and Transgender History. Susan is also an award-winning filmmaker winning a San Francisco Northern California Emmy Award for her film Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria, and has produced a number of other films, including, most recently, Christine in the Cutting Room. I am delighted to welcome Susan here tonight to talk on transgender histories from sickness to citizenship, and I hope you'll join me in giving her a very warm welcome. Thank you so much. Hello. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm going to begin. Thank you for the, the warm introduction and the, for my dinner companions earlier. It's been a very, very pleasant stay here thus far. Uh, I will be starting with a brief apology. Um, I came down with a very nasty cold while I was traveling yesterday, and so I might subject you to some hacking and coughing, but I, I promise you it's like I'm, I'm not you know, ejecting a lung or anything. It just sounds worse than it actually is. Uh, but I might need to stop at some point and take a, take a drink of water. All right, uh, the other thing I will say is that I was asked to give um, a very um, uh, general audience lecture on transgender history, which is what I have done. I suspect that some of you might be familiar with some of what I'm saying, and others of you will not be familiar with it at all. So hopefully we will just split the difference there. Um, and if I haven't gone sort of deep enough for some of you, um, we can address that in the Q&A. Or if I've talked past some of you, we can address that in the Q&A as well. All right, well, here we go. Shocking news about a male to female transsexual's change of sex grabs headlines around the globe, transfixing the attention of every major mass media outlet in the world for months on end. This newly minted woman's name is not Caitlyn Jenner. It's Christine Jorgensen. And the year is 1952, not, 19, or not 2015. Jorgensen, born and raised in working-class obscurity in the outer boroughs of New York, rocketed to international celebrity as the consequence of the media frenzy that followed news of her genital transformation surgery in Copenhagen. XGI becomes blonde beauty, screamed the front page of the New York Daily News. Operation transforms Bronx youth. 
This is in all caps. Uh, for the first year of her celebrity, Jorgensen was written about more frequently than the Korean War, hydrogen bomb tests in the Pacific, and the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. The media coverage helped her launch a lucrative nightclub career and introduced the concept of transsexuality to audiences worldwide more than half a century before Caitlyn Jenner experienced a similar level of fame. A former elite track and field star changes sex and subsequently cashes in on the resulting media hoopla by turning his story into lowbrow popular entertainment. This person's name is not Caitlyn Jenner either, but rather Zednik Kubkov, a Czech athlete who, as Zednika Kubkova, won a gold medal in the 1932 Summer Olympics and broke the world record for the 800-meter dash at the Women's World Games in London in 1934. Rivals challenged Kubkova's gender, and subsequent medical tests determined that the athlete's body naturally had a mix of male and female sex characteristics. As a result, Kubkova was barred from participating in women's athletic competitions ever again. Surgery and hormones soon gave Kubkov a more conventional male appearance, and the Czech government recognized him legally as a man. He received star treatment in the newsreels when he came to visit the United States in 1936, and Time magazine read, uh, ran a story about him under the headline, Change of Sex. Transgender issues have attained an unprecedented level of visibility since the spring of 2015, when Caitlyn Jenner's ABC News 2020 interview with Diane Sawyer drew more than 16 million viewers. Her Twitter account amassed followers at a rate that broke a record previously set when President Obama announced his campaign, and her glamorous cover photo shoot with Annie Leibovitz for Vanity Fair went viral on social media. For those just tuning in to transgender affairs, it might seem that Jenner alone has been responsible for unleashing a tidal wave of attention to transgender topics. The reality is that she is simply the latest in a long line of transgender public figures and private citizens who have shaped popular conceptions of transgender issues and increasingly won a place at society's table for transgender people after more than a century of social and political struggle. The transgender celebrity culture, now so spectacularly visible in the mass media, is a thin veneer atop a long history in which transgender people from many walks of life have helped forge the new forms of identity available in the present day. It is first and foremost a story about ordinary and extraordinary individuals who have collectively changed the world by living day to day as the people they consider themselves to be. At the same time, the historical emergence of a transgender social movement is rooted in a profound, slow-moving transformation of gender itself. Gender is a social system that classifies and imparts meaning to our physically sexed bodies and to the experiences we have of living through those bodies. Like being language users, being gendered is something common to human experience. It's part of the cultural climate that the actions of our lives take place within. Right now, the cultural climate of gender is changing globally at an unprecedented scale and speed, giving rise to new and unusual gender phenomena. 
For example, at last count, six countries, Nepal, Pakistan, India, Australia, New Zealand, and Germany, have either introduced third sex statuses on passports, dispensed with gender markers on them altogether, or created options for declining to state gender in much the way that one can decline to state race. Argentina and Malta now allow their citizens to declare a change in their social and legal gender status without needing to surgically or hormonally change their bodies. Developments such as these challenge the common sense understanding of gender as something biologically rooted in our bodies rather than in our, our cultural understanding of what our bodies mean. Such unexpected developments are rooted in the way that gender works in today's world. Just as we can't comprehend why glaciers are now melting with unprecedented speed without first understanding centuries-long trends in carbon emissions that start with the Industrial Revolution, we similarly can't understand the contemporary upsurge in transgender phenomena without understanding long-term shifts in gender as a cultural system. My work in progress, of which tonight's lecture provides a cursory overview, is called Changing Gender. Transgender History from the 19th Century Till Now. It traces the relationship between how gender changed and the emergence of transgender people. Although some of the changes I document were common to the modern West, my book is primarily a work of US history, not because I think the way these developments played out in the United States are somehow paradigmatic, but simply because my academic training is in US history, and because transgender history varies considerably country by country, and I'm unwilling to overgeneralize. So I thus invite you to provincialize what I'm saying here tonight. Understanding contemporary transgender phenomena requires us to understand new ways of dealing with gender diversity that began to appear in the late 19th century. It's not that modern European society was traditionally welcoming of gender variant people, far from it. What changed is that rather than simply condemning them on moral or religious grounds, or even criminalizing their behavior, a powerful new nexus of ideas started taking shape along with a more complex social apparatus for managing supposedly deviant bodies and lives. As psychiatry and medicine gained more cultural authority, they developed new sciences of the self that understood gender variants to be the pathological behavioral manifestation of an underlying biological cause. Understanding gender variants as a sickness, uh, of course, legitimated treating it, often against the self-understandings of the patient, often to the point of physical confinement and coercive therapies. The new mental hospitals that arose in these years were close kin to the penitentiaries that were beginning to replace simple jails, uh, which had merely held the bodies of marginalized people through brute force. The new asylums and new prisons, both aimed uh, not at mere containment and confinement, but rather at correcting their inmates. The life story of the person who had been christened Lucy Ann Lobdell at birth in 1829 offers a poignant window onto the rise of this new medical, legal, sexological science. Lobdell had always felt masculine and rebelled against the social expectations uh, of matrimony to a man in spite of a brief and troubled marriage to the ne'er-do-well Mr. George Slater. After being abandoned, Lobdell resumed his maiden name, took to wearing men's clothes, and established himself as a formidable marksman and huntsman in upstate New York. 
He published a brief memoir in 1855, The Narrative of the Female Hunter of Delaware and Sullivan Counties, that was equal parts feminist manifesto against compulsory marriage and wage inequality, a payee to the rustic life, and an early transgender autobiography. Lobdell was an excellent fiddle player and made a living for a number of years as an itinerant musician. A person of faith and religious enthusiasm, he fancied himself a minister uh, with a gift like that of St. Francis for communicating with the animals, uh, and he became a backwoods preacher. He also had a long-term romantic relationship with a woman, Louise Perry, who considered herself to be his wife and him her husband. Lobdell had been in and out of the almshouse for decades, but was eventually psychiatrically incarcerated in 1880. He remained in the asylum until death, in part for never wavering from his claim, quote, to be a man in all that the name implies. We can see in Lobdell's story the human costs that the new medical legal concepts could inflict on people who expressed their gender differently than most. Through the story of Earl Lind, a self-described androgyne and female impersonator who also used the name Jenny June, we can begin to see how the very categories and labels psychiatrists and doctors created to pathologize, control, and perhaps, as they thought, correct transgender expression could be turned around by the people they were applied to and transformed by them into subcultural identities. In The Autobiography of an Androgyne, published in 1918, Lind, who often dressed in women's attire and had requested castration at the age of 28, wrote of frequenting a place called Paresis Hall on New York City's Lower East Side in the 1890s. Lind described the hall as, quote, the headquarters for avocational female impersonators of the upper and middle classes, and noted that in 1895, a little club formed there called the Circle Hermaphroditos, arguably the first ever transgender organization with a political mission, that came together, quote, out of a perceived need to unite for defense against the world's bitter persecution. By the 1910s and 20s, medical science offered not only a bewildering variety of new labels for diverse genders and sexualities, but also a dazzling array of new possibilities for changing one's body. The disfigurement of combat soldiers during World War I propelled the development of new plastic surgical techniques, including phalloplasty, the surgical construction of a penis, to rehabilitate veterans uh, who had lost their genitals through battlefield injury. Much of the most important work in this regard was carried out in the UK under the auspices of the surgeon Harold Gillies. The physiological effects of the so-called sex hormones, estrogen and testosterone, were identified in these years as well. And surgeons and endocrinologists began experimenting with gland, gonad, and tissue transplants between sexes and sometimes between species to learn if these biochemicals could be used to enhance beauty or extend life. California writer Gertrude Atherton's 1922 novel, The Black Oxen, offered a thinly fictionalized glimpse into a world that the well-to-do Atherton knew quite well, in which the affluent members of high society would slip away to Paris for rejuvenation treatments and return home filled with estrogens extracted from the urine of pregnant mares or with bits of monkey glands grafted onto their testicles.
This was the milieu in which the Danish, Danish painter, formerly known as Einar Wegener, became Lily Elba, the first known surgically and hormonally transformed male to female transsexual through a series of operations in the late 1920s and early 1930s. Elba, of course, is currently enjoying a moment of posthumous fame through The Danish Girl, the Oscar-nominated 2015 Eddie Redmayne film that tells her life story. The lives of transgender people of color have been much less documented than those of transgender white people, but deep connections exist between transgender and racial histories. The same medical and scientific ideas that underpinned the new sexology also underpinned scientific racism and eugenic theories. Both sex and race began to acquire new scientifically legitimated legal definitions in the late 19th century US rooted in the belief that a person's social identity was properly determined by their physical body and that medical science had the authority to say what kind of body a particular body really was. These practices of diagnosis and classification had important social and political dimensions given the second class status of both women and racial minorities shoring up clear boundaries between men and women, as well as between races, plays a central role in the maintenance of gendered and racial hierarchies. Just as the classification of people by race became the basis of a powerful civil rights movement to overturn the injustices inflicted by racial classification, so too did the classification of people excuse me, as transgender and its earlier equivalents culminate in a social movement organized through transgender categories themselves to combat the specific kinds of social oppression uh, that being gender variants could elicit. I have to say I've been, I've been chill all day in this drafty old castle, but I am not chill in this room. Wait one second. The life of Lucy Hicks Anderson exemplifies the complex intertwining of racial minority and transgender status. Born in rural Kentucky in 1886, Anderson had been a feminine child who insisted on starting school as a girl rather than a boy, um, the boy that her parents had at first considered her to be. As an African American as well as a young woman, her employment opportunities were limited and she saw little need for formal education. Anderson left school and home at the age of 15, moved west, and found employment for many years as a domestic worker. She was talented and ambitious and found ways to excel within the narrow constraints imposed on her by her society. By the 1930s, she had established herself in Oxnard, California, an agricultural market hub about 60 miles north of Los Angeles, where she catered lavish parties for local elites. During the years of prohibition, when alcohol was illegal, Anderson always knew where to procure liquor. She also ran a boarding house near the waterfront that functioned as a discreet, high-end brothel. Uh, all that Anderson had built for herself came crashing down during the Second World War. Uh, when military doctors traced an outbreak of sexually transmitted diseases among soldiers and sailors back to her boarding house, and her own anomalous gender history was revealed during a medical examination. 
Pronounced legally a man, Anderson was prosecuted for fraud for having married her husband and collected his government pension. During her trial, she contested the ability of medical science to determine who she was and sought to define the meaning of her own life, stating for the record, I defy any doctor in the world to prove that I am not a woman. Anderson's protestations notwithstanding, she was found guilty, sentenced to a men's prison, and upon release, forbidden to wear women's clothing in public. She died impoverished a few years later in Los Angeles. In the immediate years after World War II, transgender issues first came to widespread public attention. Although the basic surgical and endocrinological techniques of transsexual body modification had been devised during the first decades of the 20th century, the 1940s and 1950s provided a new techno-scientific context in which these practices took on heightened cultural importance. The exigencies of war accelerated the pace of many recent technological developments, while also producing entirely new phenomena, antibiotics, blood transfusions, radar, electronic computers, jet planes, rockets, atomic bombs. This was the era when molded plastic, itself a recent invention, entered widespread use in design and architecture, symbolizing all that was mid-century modern. Bodies themselves seemed plastic and pliable. Reproductive rhythms transformable by newly available contraceptive pills and synthetic hormones, minds alterable through psychiatry, brainwashing, and an ever-expanding pharmacopoeia of drugs, including the newly synthesized psychedelic LSD. It is in this context that Christine Jorgensen, mentioned at the outset of my remarks tonight, makes her debut on the stage of world history. Through her and others like her who came to light in her wake, transsexuality functioned as a potent symbol of the so-called American century. They seemed to be denizens of Tomorrowland who emblematized the dawning of a new historical period in which science had at last seemingly triumphed over material nature and could transform it alchemically at will. By the mid-1950s, more and more transgender people similarly to gays and lesbians, had begun to think of themselves not just as isolated individuals facing their particular problems, but rather as members of a misunderstood minority community who experienced discrimination and deserved to be fully included in society. A nascent national transgender community or network uh, began to take shape through the activities of Louise Lawrence, a person assigned male at birth uh, who quietly started living publicly as a woman in San Francisco in the 1940s, who scoured the newspapers for reports of cross-dressing arrests. Contacting the arrestees, Lawrence eventually amassed a list of several hundred people. She was an important conduit of information between transgender people and the experts who were interested in studying them, such as Alfred Kinsey, who could help legitimate their plight. Lawrence was also a mentor to Virginia Prince, a pharmaceutical engineer from Los Angeles, who turned Lawrence's contacts into the subscription list of the first known transgender publications in the United States, the Society for Equality in Dress, later renamed Transvestia. The man who did the most to shape the transgender struggle in these mid-20th century years, however, was undoubtedly Reed Erickson, 
a wealthy industrialist and philanthropist from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who almost single-handedly financed the effort to establish the medical and legal uh, to establish medical and legal services for transgender people. Erickson sought to cast transgender issues not as moral, criminal, or psychopathological aberrations, but rather as a knowable and treatable condition like diabetes or polio that should not be stigmatized. Born female and living as a, as a lesbian until early adulthood, Erickson had come, to, uh, had come under FBI surveillance during the McCarthy years for having belonged to communist front organizations during his university days. He transitioned immediately following his father's early and sudden death, whereupon he inherited the family business and became an instant millionaire. He piloted his own airplane, once owned a yacht that he sold to Fidel Castro, practiced nudism and owned a nudist camp in Florida, and funded research into interspecies communication, mental telepathy, and various new age and alternative health practices. As of the early 1960s, his Erickson Educational Foundation was the principal source of funding and advocacy for the fledgling transgender movement and helped put in place the medical model of transgender identity management that remains largely in place even now. The mid-1960s and early 1970s generated a remarkable burst of radical transgender activism. These same years witnessed a fascination with gender blurring in popular culture, everything from rock and roll androgyny to Warhol's transsexual superstars to unisex fashions. It was a time when the feminist movement inspired millions of women to begin breaking down gender barriers, while the draft and the anti-war movements offered millions of men an incentive to resist traditional masculinity. The transgender movement flourished in this cultural moment when gender definitions were loosening across wide swaths of society. New government-funded social services helped improve the quality of life for transgender people, and ordinances that criminalized cross-dressing began to fall in many cities, often because transgender people themselves protested them, as did the Los Angeles-based African-American male-to-female entertainer Sir Lady Java, who proclaimed that she was not cross-dressing when she performed, but was rather a woman all the time. At the same time, a wave of gender identity clinics and surgical sex reassignment centers sprang up at research universities across the country that simultaneously sought to scientifically define clear biological, psychological, and social boundaries separating men from women, while closely regulating the people who sought to cross those borders. In consequence, transgender issues themselves became a battleground. Were transgender people a political vanguard, liberating themselves from the suffocating sexist stereotypes of the past? Or were they a reactionary presence that reinforced rigid and retrograde conventions of masculinity and femininity? One of the very first public transgender protests took place in 1965 at Dewey's Diner in downtown Philadelphia after what were described as youth in non-conventional attire were denied service there. The protests drew on the tactics of the lunch counter sit-ins spearheaded by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, as well as a newfound insistence on the part of gender non-conforming youth of color that they had a right to congregate in public. The sit-in and picketing at Dewey's succeeded in ending the harassment. Flush with success, the protesters issued a prescient police release, excuse me, press release that read in part, 
The masculine woman and the feminine man are looked down upon. But what is offensive today we have seen becomes the style of tomorrow. And even if what is offensive today remains offensive to some persons tomorrow, there is no reason to penalize nonconformist behavior. An incident the following year at Compton's Cafeteria in San Francisco's impoverished Tenderloin neighborhood was similarly sparked by refusals to serve and attempts to expel the transgender patrons who gathered there late at night. But it resulted in actual street fighting between the police, transgender women, and sex workers. The roots of the Compton's Cafeteria riot perfectly exemplify the conditions that transgender people struggled against. They were confined to the red light district because they couldn't find apartments to rent in other neighborhoods due to housing discrimination and had difficulty finding legal work outside prostitution. The police would arrest them for cross-dressing when they were simply dressing in the clothing that felt appropriate for them. Restaurants and bars would refuse them service. One night when the police came to raid Compton's, transgender women unexpectedly fought back in the first known instance of violent protest against transgender oppression, three years before the more famous rebellion at New York's Stonewall Inn in 1969, which is generally credited as the beginning of the gay rights movement. <clears throat> In the aftermath of that better-known event, two trans women of color, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, founded the most radical of all the late 60s transgender groups, STAR, the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, whose analysis drew connections between racism, homophobia, transphobia, poverty, the prison industrial complex, third world, and third world liberation struggles, while simultaneously providing food and shelter for young trans women living on the streets. Angela Douglas, a prolific writer who contributed countless articles on gay liberation, feminism, anti-war activism, and early transgender militancy to the alternative press as she relentlessly crisscrossed the country in the late 1960s and early 70s, merits special mention here uh, in that the organization she founded in Los Angeles in 1970, TAO, the Transsexual Activist Organization, <coughs> became the first international transgender political group, which in its heyday claimed more than 2,000 members worldwide. Among that number was Professor Stephen Whittle, now perhaps um, the best known trans advocate in the UK, who established TAO's Birmingham chapter. Douglas struggled throughout her life with mental illness, but she nevertheless made an important contribution to the transgender movement and left a remarkable record of her passage through life. <coughs> In her, her self-published 1983 memoir, Triple Jeopardy, Douglas wrote, people say that I am strange. No, I'm not. I'm not any stranger than the cosmos with its countless, countless stars and bizarre black holes and quasars and time warps and distances that we cannot really imagine. I am no stranger than a volcano, a hurricane, the myriads of life forms on this planet, the processes that we know as life and death or anything else. But I am different to some extent from most human beings, and that has nearly killed me and has left me destitute on many occasions despite intelligence, talent, and ability. 
While Douglas's demons were no doubt fiercer than most, the challenges she struggled with are precisely those that many transgender people have faced at some point. Social isolation, stigmatization, employment and housing discrimination, poverty. While the affinity that she felt with the deep, vital, and non-human pulse of the cosmos is precisely what keeps so many transgender people joyously alive now in the face of daily adversity. The years between the mid-1970s and early 1990s were especially difficult for trans people. And after the heady breakthroughs of the previous decade, belie any simple faith in the inevitability of progress. The pervasive mood of retrenchment, retreat, and defeat that accompanied what in hindsight we can recognize as the beginnings of the neoliberal austerity regimes of the present day had devastating consequences for the fragile gains of the transgender movement. Many of the support organizations established in previous decades shut their doors, and those that remained or replaced them did so with diminished budgets and staffs. Former gay and feminist partners in countercultural politics began turning against transgender people when homosexuality was officially depathologized and removed from the new edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, published in 1973. Gays increasingly perceived transgender people who sought body-changing medical interventions as not being sufficiently liberated from the psychopathological model. Liberal feminists, too, increasingly cast transgender people, particularly transgender women, as reactionary infiltrators who are trying to destroy the women's movement from within. Current conflicts between transgender advocates and feminists such as Jermaine Greer, Sheila Jeffries, and Julie Bendel date from these years. Conditions for transgender people continued to degenerate throughout the 1980s. Gender identity disorder first entered the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in its fourth revised edition in 1980. And while this would seem to provide doctors with the ability to prescribe treatment for transgender people seeking to change their bodies, it did so only by casting transgender feelings, unlike homosexual ones, as a psychological disorder. To make matters even worse, the AIDS crisis that first became visible in 1981 fell disproportionately heavily on transgender populations, particularly transgender women of color. While white gay men received the bulk of media attention in the early days of the pandemic, public health researchers knew all along that the vectors along which the infection spread primarily had to do not with sexuality, but rather with vulnerabilities structured by poverty, racism, and social discrimination resulting in poor access to health care. In consequence, trans women of color who engaged in commercial sexual activity and were injection drug users had the highest rate of HIV infection of any demographic group in the United States. One of the first trans people to become a public champion in the fight against AIDS, however, was Lou Sullivan, a former Catholic schoolgirl from the suburbs of Milwaukee who became a gay man in San Francisco. Sullivan corresponded with hundreds of trans men and other people assigned female at birth who questioned their gender identity or sought ways to express their masculinity more fully. He wrote community-oriented histories that profiled the lives of transgender men and passing women in earlier periods authored a vital how to transition guide called information for the female to male transsexual and crossdresser and pushed medical service providers to recognize that transgender people could be gay or lesbian in their achieved gender sullivan himself had long been denied surgical care by the gender clinics on the grounds that his attraction to men meant he wasn't a true transsexual <laughs> 
After Sullivan tested positive for HIV, he wrote a scathing letter to the gender professionals in which he said, you told me that I couldn't live as a gay man, but now it looks as if I'll die like one. Sullivan became an outspoken AIDS activist in the final years of his life, calling attention to the transgender dimensions of the epidemic and volunteering for experimental drug trials. He died of an AIDS-related illness in 1992, shortly before retroviral cocktails made HIV infection a treatable chronic disease, and just as a new chapter of transgender history was beginning to unfold. 1992 was, in fact, the year that the word transgender itself first entered widespread use, largely through the influence of an incendiary pamphlet by the Marxist organizer Leslie Feinberg, Transgender Liberation, a movement whose time has come. Although transgender's first documented use was actually in 1964, the term became associated in the early 90s through Feinberg's pamphlet with an activist sensibility that owed much to the radical responses to the AIDS crisis, particularly those mounted by such groups as ACT UP and Queer Nation, which contested government complacency over the epidemic with a sense of desperate urgency at a time when those infected with HIV lived on average only about three years. Transgender people mobilized against their own oppression with similar ferocity, not only against the epidemic that disproportionately affected them, but also against the truly dire life circumstances that characterized trans experience at this time, resulting in a slower form of death. Transgender people could be fired at will from their jobs, denied housing, have their marriages annulled, custody of their children revoked. They were vulnerable to arrest and police violence and experienced incarceration at higher rates than the general population, usually being housed in correctional facilities that did not match their appearance and gender identity. Stigmatized and disparaged, they suffered high levels of hate-motivated personal violence and experienced higher rates of depression and substance abuse while trying to cope with their many challenges. Often unable to change name and gender markers on state-issued IDs, they essentially became undocumented non-citizens of their own country. The suicide rate among transgender people is truly shocking, eight times the national average, with nearly half of all transgender people having contemplated or attempted killing themselves at some point in their life. Throughout the 1990s, a new wave of activist and advocacy organizations too many to chronicle here in the short time remaining to us, took shape that began to win legislative and judicial victories and to gradually alter public perceptions. In spite of these new gains, in spite of these gains, new challenges for trans people continued to emerge in the early 21st century. The US-led wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the Patriot Act, the Real ID Act, and other responses to the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon ushered in an era of heightened security and surveillance, tightened border control, and increased militarization, all of which presented particular difficulties for transgender people. Government databases that cross-referenced names associated with particular social security numbers, passport numbers, driver's license numbers, that checked for discrepancies and anomalies could result in transgender people showing up on no-match lists, no-fly lists, terrorism watch lists, and being targeted for further investigation. Body scanners at airports and borders could reveal a discordance between a person's outer appearance and what security personnel might expect to find beneath a traveler's clothing, thereby raising red flags over possible attempts at disguise and thus questions about criminal intent that might lead to detention and interrogation. 
Apprehension over this newly emboldened state security apparatus is precisely what led National Security Administration data analyst Chelsea Manning, struggling over her own gender identity, to become a whistleblower in the largest leak of classified government information since the Vietnam War. As Western countries increasingly struggle with how to balance privacy and security, minority rights and majority traditions, attention to transgender issues uh, has become a litmus test for progressive and inclusive values rather than a fringe concern and a red flag for the right wing. Since the 2014 Supreme Court rulings on marriage equality, transgender issues in the U.S. have quickly gained prominence as a cutting-edge struggle for social justice. As such, they have begun to draw increasingly pointed opposition from conservatives who attempt to use transgender civil rights protections as wedge issues in their own political campaigns. Asserting, for example, that allowing transgender women to use public toilets that match their appearance is tantamount to allowing a man in a dress to sexually prey on little girls in the ladies' room. In the past six months alone, half a dozen U.S. states have introduced legislation seeking to limit transgender access to gender-appropriate facilities, often linking these efforts to attempts to secure religious liberty. The emerging linkage between transgender rights, ideals of citizenship, and geopolitical calculation has rarely been more apparent than in President Obama's 2015 State of the Union address, when he became the first sitting president to utter the word transgender in public speech. And here's his quote. As Americans, we respect human dignity even when we're threatened, which is why I've prohibited torture and work to make sure our use of new technology like drones is properly constrained. That's why we defend free speech and advocate for political prisoners and condemn the persecution of women or religious minorities or people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. We do these things not only because they're right, but because it makes us safer. <clears throat> I'll just leave it at that. Um, for the first time in the century-long struggle over transgender rights and social belonging, there are now more opportunities for transgender people to fully experience their citizenship, provided that they are the right kind of transgender person. Increasingly, for white, middle-class transgender people who can achieve a fairly typical appearance as either a man or a woman, and who can create a coherent, bureaucratic, and administrative paper trail of their identity, and thus are, do not become a problem body for the surveillance state, there are far fewer barriers to social inclusion. At the same time, transgender people of color, poor transgender people, people who have gotten caught in the gears of the prison system, or people who lack identity documents or who have contradictory forms of documentation, are all experienced heightened forms of vulnerability. The murder rate for trans women of color in 2015 in the United States is significantly higher than in previous years as a result of this new visibility. This is the crux of the contemporary transgender political movement, how to better ensure that gains for some become gains for all, and that hard-won rights are not rolled back by legislating prejudice. And so to conclude, however unfamiliar transgender history might appear in its particular details, its intimate inner workings should be immediately recognizable. 
Don't we all engage in an intricate dance of acquiescence and defiance to define ourselves against, yet sometimes through, the expectations imposed on us by our friends and lovers, our families, our society, our traditions and belief, our laws and customs? Don't we all strive to better become the person we really think we are in community with others, in spite of what others might think? Haven't we all at some point swum upstream against the tide of life for the sake of our own survival? Transgender people engage in the same existential quests as other folk, but of necessity dive deeper than most. For their personal journeys can bring them into confrontation with their culture's bedrock beliefs about the very nature of reality. Science, religion, and social norms can all conspire to assert that our biological being inarguably determines who we are and that it cements us to our place in the order of the world. Yet transgender people do argue, often at the risk of death and the attribution of madness, and in the face of stifling social oppressions, both large and small, that they are indeed something other and something more than their culture has said they can possibly be. Society, religion, and science alike struggle to define and explain the curious existence of trans people. Do they have different neural networks, different genes, different childhoods, different souls? Are they bad, sick, wrong, dangerous, confused, victimized, marginal, exemplary, courageous, or cutting edge? But at stake in the transgender condition is something more fundamental than which story about it is right. In the very act of crossing from one category of gendered personhood to another, transgender people bear witness to material reality's fluid rather than fixed nature, its inherent capacity for self-transformation. The history of the universe, after all, is a history of ceaseless change, not of stasis. When the drive to change gender opens transgender people up to this dimension of reality within themselves, to material beings' ongoing processes of unfolding. It affirms a radical potential within all of us for ass asserting the meaning of our own singular and precious life. It manifests a cosmic capacity for wild and rapturous becomings, writ small. In a world where wealthy couples from Europe and North America can start a family by outsourcing pregnancy and birth to surrogate mothers in India who gestate purchased eggs fertilized with donated sperm, where cosmetic and plastic surgery, including genital enhancements, are becoming routine rather than exotic procedures, and where the rising generation increasingly considers a clean, bright line between the sexes to be a relic of the last millennium. Whatever it is that makes a man a man and a woman a woman is increasingly up for debate and increasingly elusive. In more and more contexts, gender is mostly a matter of what a person considers themselves to be. More than being a system for classifying people based on their sex characteristics, it's becoming a body style, a look, a personal preference for sporting luxuriant facial hair or ample breasts. The more gender becomes an idiosyncratic expression of self, the fewer legal distinctions there are to distinguish men's and women's social and legal roles, and the greater the degree of high-tech assisted reproduction, then the more the lives of non-transgender people come to resemble the lives transgender people have been leading for a very long time. The history of the transgender struggle thus offers a portent of more widely generalizable conditions of life and the brave new world materializing all around us.
At a time when the human is rapidly destroying both humanity and the living world, the deep knowledge embodied in transgender lives that we can truly become other than we seemingly always already have been can be a vital resource indeed for whatever future we might collectively hope to have. Thank you. Um, I have a slightly unfair question to start with. Bring it on. <laughs> um, which I would hate to be asked myself. Um, these histories have obviously been carried out against uh, great adversity. They're all special, uh, you're, they're all unique. Mm -hmm. um, for you as a person, is there any moment, individual, period that really speaks out to you? I'm, it's a horrible question. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated with the period like 1966 to 1973, um, just because it seemed like, um, I mean, you know, really, you know, like what we thought of as gender. I mean, it's like I was saying in the talk, it's like bodies seemed incredibly pliable at that time. Like things were changing in these sort of unprecedented quasi-revolutionary ways you know like I, I think about um, I think about Andy Warhol you know it's like in 1966 that that's when he comes up with the exploding plastic inevitable you know with uh, Lou, with um, with Lou Reed and and um, and um, and Nico you know that that there's there was this sort of cultural zeitgeist and you know everything was just in flux and you you didn't really know what was possible and then around 1973 everything crashes and locks into place again you know and I, I think it's um, you know I think it's really interesting to think about how you know all of the large-scale geopolitical changes that happen in 1973 foreclose a set of um, options for embodied personhood that had seemed to be flourishing just a few years before. And in 1973, <laughs> you know, it's like it's um, the reaction sets in. You know, how does that, how does that happen? How does the, um, what's the relationship between sort of the macro political level of, um, you know, society and the possibilities for being a particular historical kind of embodied being. So uh, if I had to pick a particular period that I was most interested in, I would say it would be 66 to 73, yeah. which will be chapter four in my forthcoming book. <laughs> Any questions? Hi, thank you, fascinating. Um, when you look at kind of non many non-Western cultures, mm -hmm. you see kind of a third sex mm -hmm. that kind of manifests in different ways. Trans in many ways kind of isn't a cult, isn't similar to that. It's a different kind of manifestation, which partly makes you think the binary in Western cultures is really quite unique. And, and I suppose I, I can't quite decide which question to go with. One is if you think, if you've thought, if you have a perspective on what kind of the reasons for the app, the reasons for that of the organization of Western culture are and why that happens, or, relatedly, kind of the increase relatively recently of intersex as kind of a distinct potential identity movement as well, and whether either of those connect them with that kind of third sex you see in other cultures. Yeah, you know, I don't, uh, those are both big, complicated, interrelated questions, and I don't know if I have a simple 
answer for you. My, my personal take on the first question about the, what you're calling the Western binary, I mean, I, I do think it has everything to do with the techniques that have been developed in the West to govern people's lives. You know, it's like this is one of the places where I'm a, a pretty orthodox Foucauldian, you know, that, um, that the idea of um, a series of binaries, of, you know, man, woman, hetero, homo, white of color um, become these mechanisms for biopolitically sorting kinds of life into social hierarchies where some modes of life are more fully invested in and others are, are neglected or even targeted for outright killing so that their life becomes resource for the life of something else. Um, so, you know, in, in that sense, I think the, um, the, the, well, we were talking about this a little bit at, at dinner. It's like one of the things that I think was fascinating about Christine Jorgensen in 1952. I mean, she certainly wasn't the first transsexual in the world, but she was the first truly globally famous transsexuals, like the kind of hyper-visibility that she experienced, I think it had everything to do with the manifestation of, um, well, what she manifested was the preservation of Western modes of organizing life according to these multiple binaries even at a moment when technology was rapidly, you know, kind of kicking the ground out from under our feet in terms of ways that we, we um, tend to ground and secure notions of um, self in the body. And so, you know, she's this kind of paradoxical um, uh, sort of, yeah, pr preservation and tr transcendence of like a seeming crisis in Western representations of the body and that she becomes this thing that has almost, I mean, I think it's not too strong to say almost a kind of religious significance. Um, I mean, not for me personally, but like when I look at what people were, were writing, it's like she, um, and there were thousands and thousands of people who wrote to her after they heard her story. And there's one where this, this person says, you know, I saw her story and I thought, that's it. This is the answer. It is not Christ, but Christine, who is my savior. You know, um, that there's this, the, um, you know, there was all kinds of um, vernacular writing about her that did see her as kind of like a sign of a new historical era. Um, you know, and the, it just, it fascinates me that, that, you know, basically doing a little nip and tuck, you know, becomes this thing that uh, seems to have some kind of cosmological and world historical significance. And I think it has to do, like I'm saying, with the, um, with the idea that it sort of, tr transsexuality seems to secure the categories through which lives become intelligible in the modern West. And if you look transnationally, it's like um, as Jorgensen, as her publicity, you know, hits in different countries, if you read the newspaper coverage in whatever country it is, the press is always comparing Jorgensen to whatever the local variant is. And they're saying, oh, it's like this or it's not like this, or, you know, we've got this, and you're sort of not that. It's like, and it, it that that 
trans transsexual at the time becomes a site, a cultural site for colonial and post-colonial struggles over, you know, how bodies are, are um, conceptualized and fitted into a social order and settled on a land and become, or on a territory and become useful for a state apparatus. Um, you know, so anyways, like I, I, I think the, the global dissemination of tra transsexual ideas post-World War II is just a really fascinating topic to look at. The question about intersex, um, you know, there's always been really slippery boundaries between trans, inter, and homo, you know, um, you know that there are plenty of um, theories about homosexuality that, you know, it's like, you know, it's something about your brain or, you know, there's some like neural, um, you know, intersex condition that makes you gay or some trans people will say, you know, I, I have a female brain and a male body or vice versa. You know, so it's just they, they um, you know, there's, there were gender inverted notions of homosexuality. Uh, you know, a gay man was a feminine soul trapped in a male body. So I, I don't think that we have any real clear, hard and fast distinctions between what's homo and what's trans and what's inter. They can collapse and shift um, as needed um, for you know, purposes of control. Um, um, and then, you know, in, just in terms, <coughs> in terms of identity politics, it's um, always fascinating to me to see you know, wh where people draw lines between like me and not like me and what it implies to be like or not like somebody else. And that's where I get all anthropological and just sort of step back and look at it and say, hmm, isn't it interesting, you know, that, you know, this person has really been out of shape because somebody said they were a this instead of a that. Yeah. Who's next? Patrick? Thank you for, that, for your amazing talk. Um, my question is, and maybe your title is already giving it away, but about terminology. So, um, and this might be different between the, the U.S. And the, and the U.K., but uh, where we went from tran uh, transsexual to transgender to trans to trans asterisks, mm -hmm. and uh, there is this change of going back to transgender again. Mm -hmm. maybe. My, my, what is your view on that? Mm -hmm. And second, um, my question, and second question, is what allows for more stability, basically? Mm -hmm. So the young people that I'm working with, mm -hmm. there is. Mostly there's this need and this, this cry almost for, for this fluidity, like this non-binary idea of culture. Yeah, you know, I think the idea of fluidity, and this is just, you know, not a professional opinion, but more sort of anecdotal observation. It's like it really seems to me that for many young people, fluidity is really important just because they haven't decided yet, you know, how they want to spend the rest of their lives. And that a lot of people who say they're gender fluid or, you know, whatever now, they'll, they'll be less fluid later. Um, uh, just like you figure out what you want more. Um, but, you know, that's not a, a hard and fast rule. Um, you know, I, I feel mixed about all of the terms you know it's like transgender did a particular kind of work in the early 90s um, 
You know, it was seen as being um, against coercive medicalization and pathologization. You know, it created a range of everything from, you know, short-haired women and guys who like nail polish to, you know, people who, um, you know, want to surgically alter their genitals and permanently change their social social status as a man or a woman. And I like that. I like that idea of this, you know, incredible proliferation of gendered possibilities. I think it's a, a politically very useful thing to do. On the other hand, it can lack specificity. You know, it's like there isn't like one transgender thing. Um, I've been intrigued over the last 25 years that transgender has, in many ways, in the U.S come to mean what transsexual used to mean, you know, that it was, um, um, you know, there's a joke, it's like how do you tell the difference between a transgender person and a genderqueer? It's like you ask the transgender person if they're a man or a woman and they say yes, if you ask a genderqueer they say no. <laughs> um, and so th the idea of transgender basically meaning I used to be an X and now I'm a Y. That was not the the meaning of trans that that was popularized in the early early 1990s. <coughs> um, <coughs> um, I had a thought here and I coughed it right out of my head. Um, where was I going to go with that? Um, the like trans hyphen and trans asterisks are just trans, you know, punked. Um, I saw that emerging uh, as a, as an attempt to resist precisely the the conflation of transgender with transsexual. But as transgender came to mean more and more a particular kind of gender nonconformity or atypicality, that people just lexically played with it and um, and you know tried to come up with with things that were not as specific. I saw it as a as an attempt to hold on to that kind of fluidity and flexibility that the word initially had. Um, I, I like the trans hyphen and the trans asterisk versions of it because one of the things that I think that that kind of um, um, lexicality re represents is um, you know, if we think of gender the way I was thinking about gender in, in my talk as a sort of this social system that's, that sorts people, um, you know, transgender is about performing the conceptual operation of trans on the social system called gender. But that, that kind of trans hyphen or trans asterisk, I think, opens up the possibility of thinking of trans as a kind of conceptual operation that doesn't necessarily have to attach to gender, you know, and that you can, like, it makes it easier to think in these sort of multimodal ways like transgender, transnational, trans species, you know, that, that you're really concentrating on the transness of something, you know, trans, the, the, the prefix that doesn't make any sense by itself, has to attach to something else, pulls that category along, plays with its boundaries, crosses over it into something else. So it's like I like the slippery playfulness of trans hyphen or trans asterisk, not so much like trans as a new 
noun because you know to me it's like that seems to consolidate a kind of social identity a little too rigidly um, I guess the one other thing I would say about nomenclature is that I've actually seen a kind of return and whether this is like you know liking vinyl records instead of CDs it's like I see the word transsexual coming back um, and it has a particular political um, valence to it that transgender is often seen as kind of like queer it's like queer what is that like queer doesn't necessarily mean anything anymore sort of lost all of its critical purchase and transgender the same way transgendering what right but transsexual it's like there's actually a politics around it it's like it's it's the Transsexuals are people who have to politically engage with what the state says their body means. They have to engage with bureaucracies. They have to engage with a medical system. You know that they they they, um, they have a transsexuality implies a more grounded political critique and side of struggle. Whereas transgender could just be like, well, maybe it's that and maybe it's not. You know. Um, so anyway, I mean, I I think. One of the things that's most fascinating about trans studies these days is that there isn't even a basic agreement on what the terms mean. You know, it's just like this big nebulous cloud of gender body different something, and you just kind of wade into it and figure out what people are doing and that's that's kind of fascinating it's new I mean that's why I use sort of the metaphor of like gender climate change we sort of we don't know what is emerging right now you know it's just it's a new thing so what might trans or trans asterisks only and not diminish what has been done with the word tra or transgender mm. transsexual yeah I don't I mean I don't think so I mean I think of it as a for me, like trans is always a both and and an either or. You know, it transes. I mean, it it's like that's kind of implicit in the idea of transing. Like, what's your binary? It's like, is it both and? Well, you know, it's like it crosses that. It's like, is it either or? Well, it crosses that, and then it crosses the both and or either or yeah. dichotomy. It's both and and neither nor. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a very interesting lecture um, because a lot of your material was based in America. Yeah. However, I'm fascinated that the period that you began the, the old lecture was about 1890. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering why you didn't include Native Americans. Yeah, well, that gets to this question for me about um, what's the relationship between Western ideas of gender diversity and non-Western and non-indigenous notions of gender diversity. I feel very, um, well, so there's a long history of, um, I think, of people in white settler colonial societies making identifications with the indigenous people there as a way of kind of um, um, making their peace with being colonists. You know, it's like, like let's say, so this, this person, um, Lucy Ann Lobdell Slater that I mentioned, um, she, he actually um, dressed for many years, you know, in, in the woods, in 
Indian garb. And it was like this sense of, you know, I love the forests, I, you know, I am at home here, I value this culture that was here before me. There might have been some kind of identification with the non-Western gender systems that existed in some of the native cultures. But however inspiring that might be, um, it is at another level a kind of reproduction of settler colonialism. It's like making native culture be there for the settler. Um, you know, and I'm just, however, um, you know, like in the 1970s, you know, there was um, a, a lesbian poet and writer in the U.S., Judy Gron, who wrote this book called Another Mother Tongue that was all about, you know, we, you know, I, I, I um, value Native American culture because it gives me this um, difference from the present, it's like I'm oppressed in this society and I look at this other, the one that I live in and I look at this other society where people like me were valued um, and I'm much more, you know, comfortable there than in my own culture. Or, you know, Harry Hay and the radical fairies and the, it's, you know, th th there's, um, um, there's something that I just say I find suspect about that kind of cultural appropriation. You know, I don't think that, um, you know, there were, you know, what, like 2,000 different cultures in North America, you know, with, you know, different, um, different gender systems than those of the colonists. You know, I don't think that, um, I, I don't think that you can draw some easy connection, you know, between, you know, settler colonialist transgender and North American indigenous cultural forms any more than, you know, the, the paganism, paganism yeah. and right, right. You know, it's just like it's apples and oranges. Right. It's interesting to me that, that, you know, if you look um, historically and, and globally, gender systems are really complicated. This idea of a biologically rooted man-woman binary is pretty specific to the modern West. Well, you know, that it's specific to a Judeo-Christian Islamic mm. belief. You know, yeah, and see, and I yeah, but you know, then the other thing I will say is I have a, a colleague who's a, um, a rabbinicist who looks at uh, first century of the current era rabbinic texts about how these rabbis in Jerusalem, you know, around 100 or so of the current era, you know, were sitting around and having debates about marriage, you know, in this body of texts that he looks at. Um, and you know, and it's all about um, who can marry whom. And so, like, if a man dies without having children, then his brother is supposed to marry the widow, and then the child has the name of the deceased father or the patronymic. So these rabbis are sitting around talking about that, and then one of them says, "Yeah, but like, what if, what if the brother's a eunuch? 
you know, it's like, oh, well, do you mean a natural eunuch or a eunuch by accident or a eunuch, you know, whatever. So there are all of these conversations in this, you know, like 2,000 year old, you know, literature where my colleague, his name's Max Strassfeld, um, you know, it says actually ancient Judaism has a seven gender system. You know, it's like there's seven different statuses that have different legal, social, and theological responsibilities. You know, and so, you know, it's like we don't tend to think about Judaism as having seven genders. And so the, the more we look at the past through the lens of a contemporary awareness of possible gender diversity and don't automatically conflate you know, biology with social category, the more complex even you know, Judaic and early Christian and Islamic traditions look. You know, there's pl you know, plenty of gender crossing and magical saintly sex change in early Christianity. Um, so all of which is to say, it's like I, I'm fascinated with global gender diversity and pretty set on thinking about contemporary Eurocentric transgender being uh, an artifact of sort of the techniques of governance that are developed, you know, since the, you know, like 17th, 16th and 17th centuries. It's a particular way that the West has of, of um, making a body part of a particular body politic. So, um, yeah. Any so. more questions? What? One. Um, I hope I phrase this correctly. Um, well, if you don't, I'll let you know. Okay. okay. <laughs> right. um, so I'm, I've been thinking about sort of the shift from thinking about gender in terms of a binary to sort of existing on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, I've read um, Jack Haberstam's mm -hmm. Female Masculinity, in which there seems to be the argument that there's kind of a fine line between Stone Butch sexuality and then trans Tens women. Masculinity. Mas yeah, trans mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, um, But I'm wondering if, if this sort of spectral way of thinking or thinking of gender along the spectrum is not also very limiting and one-dimensional. And that if, I don't know, if your, your sort of thoughts on um, the I guess introduction of intersex <laughs> individuals um, might, in, in the same way that, um, sorry, intersex individuals are now creating, or I don't want to say forcing, but opening opportunities mm -hmm. to think about gender in a more three-dimensional or matrix-like yeah. concept. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you there. I mean, that, um, you know, J Jack's book on female masculinity, I think, came out in, what was it, 95 or 6, somewhere around there. And, you know, I think even Jack's thinking has moved on from that. I mean, I don't want to speak on their behalf. But, you know, I do see a way in that book to call it female masculinity stabilizes the idea of female 
and male, right? And says like, okay, we know what female is, and then there's this whole range of things. And I agree with you, you know, that when you say intersex, like the idea of sex not being one thing, I wouldn't necessarily say only intersex, but like the idea, you know, which, you know, Judith Butler writes about, of the idea of a unitary sex being a kind of fiction, right? And so that it's not a, sex is not a stable foundation that then had like gender signifiers get to play in relation to, but that it's as fluid and flexible as gender representation. And so in that sense, it is like more like a matrix, you know, like the idea that there are just all of these like different things that count as sex for whatever political or cultural reason and whatever context. And those are variable and gender expression is variable. And, you know, it just is not a, it's, it's dynamic, you know, it's, um, it's like gender is like a, a phase space, you know, it's not just like a, um, you know, it's a, no, I'm going to start losing my train of thought because the histamines are coming back to my head. But yeah, I basically I agree with you. It's like it's more like a matrix. Intersex fits into that. Trans doesn't necessarily stabilize the sex binary, and it gets really complicated and interesting and fun the more ways you realize that things are just incredibly variable. Um, I like to read this kind of new-ish branch of social criticism called assemblage theory um, um, because it, it looks sort of at exactly that, thinking about I, um, like an assemblage is not like a uh, unified totality. It's like assemblages aren't organically related to each other. Assemblages always are heterogeneous mixtures that are always related to something outside them. There's never any stable um, assemblage. Everything is always sort of dynamic and unfolding. And I think to think about gender as a kind of assemblage rather than gender as a kind of um, unified totality, or sex gender as a assemblage rather than a unified totality is really conceptually the way to go. So thank you for that for that, that question. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Susan, <coughs> um, I'm sure we could go on all night. Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but on that note, um, mm. I'm sure you'd be happy to chat. Kind of. Yeah, I'm happy to chat. Um, but we should uh, probably release you. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just falls on me to say, Professor Susan Stryker, uh, thank you very much. That's mm -hmm. been very wide-ranging, very interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been quite the tour de force. We've mm -hmm. been, uh, covered a lot of area. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. Thank you.